Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Louis Brawley. Welcome, Louis. Hi, Rick. Uh, Louis has written a book called Goner, which is about his experience with U.G. Uh, Krishnamurti. And let me just read a little bio he's got on the back of it. Uh, Louis was born in Ohio and lived and worked in New York, where he met U.G. Krishnamurti in 2002. Lewis traveled in the USA, India, and Europe with UG for the following five years, acting as an informal caregiver as UG's health deteriorated. Lewis works as an artist, photographer, and freelance art handler worldwide, occupations which fund his travels around the world, writing and recording accounts and impressions from friends of the, quote, raging sage. And um, here's a little bit about UG. Uh, <clears throat> Goner will teach you the meaning of the phrase paradoxical truth. Yuji Krishnamurti gave up everything for truth, but delighted in ridiculous fabrications. He was a teacher who refused to teach, a man who, who mocked do-gooders, but was deeply kind. He was chaste, but foul-mouthed. He was a man who decried the supernatural, yet there were strange co uh, coincidences around him. Um, I'll just keep reading this. This is good, and then we'll, we'll get into our conversation. The way he lived, his living quarters, and his mode of expression were one continuous movement, a three-dimensional living book of teaching. If you were observant, you could learn from him on contact with no need for explanation. Yeah, okay, I'll keep reading. One more paragraph. Lewis probably doesn't use honeyed platitudes to tell the story of a sage and his devoted follower. Instead, he tells an often unflattering story of his own struggles and shortcomings and the dynamic uncertainties of life with a man who quote, tore apart everything human beings have built up, up inside and out for centuries. I must say, Lewis, in addition to being an artist, you're a very good writer. I, th I, th I think this book is <laughs> very nicely written. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you what, you know, in this interview, I, I often try to leave my opinions out of interviews, but in my opinion, UG um, was a very opinionated man and very, <laughs> very assertive and uh, kind of spoke authoritatively uh, in his opinions. And so I'll be kind of opinionated in, in conducting this interview, and, and I'm sure you can handle it. And, um, and my opinions won't, you know, won't be all black and white either because, you know, I feel that, well, we'll get into it. You'll see what I mean. Um, my impression of the guy as I read the book and listened to quite a few hours of his recordings was that on the one hand I disagreed with pretty much everything he said <laughs> but on the other hand but on the other hand you know I mean even a broken clock tells the correct time twice a day and uh, but he wasn't broken I mean I, I found myself seeing in, in just about everything he said I, I would find myself saying okay well I could see how that's true you know, from a particular perspective. It's not necessarily a universal, absolute truth, but yeah, fine. But, you know, I also got the impression that he probably disagreed with most everything he said as well. And to a great extent, he was being a shock jock of spirituality, you know, a, a, a Don Rickles or a, what's that other guy, a Howard Stern, you know, yeah. uh, just kind of messing with people's heads and trying to be outrageous and, and, and being really, to some extent, an entertainer. So anyway, those are my those are my impressions, and I and another thing I really appreciated as I read the book was your obvious love of the man and sincerity and and dedication and stick to itiveness, you know, hanging in there through thick and thin, um, 
you know, and I honor anyone who who comes from the heart like that and really puts his life on the line uh, in service of something that is meaningful to him and inspires him. So, you know, kudos on that. Thanks. <laughs> uh, that's funny. <laughs> so, I don't know, what do you think, you know, based on what of that little strange introduction, what would be your... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's perfect. Right? It's perfect. Uh, I When I first saw Yuji's pictures on a website, I think I described it in the book, my reaction was, um, who is this narcissistic um, person who feels the need to put their quotes and photos on a website and post it on the internet as if, as if, as if, because I was at that point still kind of under the influence, not kind of, deeply under the influence of Jay Krishnamurti, who I'm sure anybody who's checking this out has at least heard of. Um, <clears throat> and so my initial response to Yuji was a, a little note to the website, having not read anything, saying, can I get a poster or a T-shirt, you know, kind mm -hmm. of with this. Uh, but then when I started to read what he had to say, I something very peculiar happened, and it was... Uh, very simple and very ordinary and almost invisible. And that was that my obsession, and I, I have a tendency to lock onto a, this subject matter for whatever reason, my obsession with Jiddu Krishnamurti was evaporated. Mm -hmm. And that was something that came out of, uh, that started with uh, the exposure to him. And I went to see him a couple of times in California, and I really was deeply affected by his by his message and it changed the course of my life for a long time so here's this guy with the same last name which immediately made me suspicious oh he's just riding on the coattails or something but it's a common and last name in India yeah. it's like Smith over there right right, right. so um, I was just really taken aback by the effect of this of, of Yuji's uh, initial words and that was just from reading the book mm-hmm and it was confusing because he was saying, you know, if you know, this is uh, there's nothing you can do. He, he says a lot of things that I found unnerving and at the same time a peculiar relief. Um, but what it set up for me was the immediate urge, <laughs> overwhelming urge, to find this guy. So uh, for me, when 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 he said later on attraction is the action that's that rings true now as much as ever you know I, I, I feel like I was kind of uh, monogamous in my life with these Krishnamurti somehow <laughs> you know it's yeah. about the only thing I've been able to maintain monogamy with because mm. the rest of my life is a kind of shiftless mess so <clears throat> <clears throat> and it wasn't by will or any good grace of mine that I stuck it out with these people it just you know I think it's an overwhelming attraction that you just get hit with yeah um, and we all have our paths and we all have our tr attractions yeah, exactly. and you know with somebody else it could be this teacher or that teacher or yeah. you know or you know gambling or whatever I mean people <laughs> <laughs> yep. people get addicted to all kinds of things so spirit yep. spirituality in general tends to be a rather wholesome one but not always uh, not always, I would say. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Mm. 
can be abused like anything else. Sure. Um, so let's get a little bit more acquainted with you, G. Um, I understand that he himself was a student of J. Krishnamurti from a young age, or at least a, in that circle his family was were devotees or, or students of him or something like that. Well, you can explain it better. Yeah, it's an interesting story because Jiddu Krishnamurti was the world teacher and he was being set up by the Theosophical Society as that vehicle for the society. Mm -hmm. And when Yuji was a boy, his grandfather was raising him, his grandfather and grandmother. His mother died when he was an infant, so his grandparents raised him, which is common there. So his grandfather was a, a kind of um, traditional Hindu who had an interest in theosophical ideas as well, the Theosophical Society, which at that time was a, one of the earliest combinations of East and West thinking, spiritual thinking. So Yuji grew up in an environment surrounded by Hinduism, traditional Hinduism, and this kind of the earliest form of New Age spirituality probably, or one of the earliest for sure, and Jiddu Krishnamurti was a pretty glamorous character. I mean, he was movie star good looks and, uh, you know, a pretty charismatic personality, and he was really set up as quite the leader. And so Yuji, as a boy, was surrounded by images and the impression of this individual. And Jiddu Krishnamurti also represents an interesting bridge from India to the West. I mean, my initial attraction to him was the lack of spiritual lingo in Jiddu Krishnamurti. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, it was a good setup for meeting Yuji, of course, to, to be exposed to that initially. Because Yuji really, uh, there's a point where he said, I inherited three things from my grandfather. Lots of money, the Theosophical Society, and Jiddu Krishnamurti. Mm -hmm. And I think Jiddu Krishnamurti was the last one for him to get off his back. Hmm. My uh teacher who was my teacher for a long time, Marshi Mahesh Yogi, made an interesting comment about Jiddu Krishnamurti. He said, sometimes people are born at a very high level of consciousness and they just fall into awakening quite spontaneously. And such people don't make good teachers because they haven't gone through the steps that it might take to attain that realization for the ordinary person and so they speak from their level of consciousness and people listen from their level of consciousness and a connection is never properly made yeah. so so very few people get awakened as a result of association with such a person it's a tough it's a tough one I when I uh, I think a lot of people have these experiences when they meet a teacher because you're accessing a part of your experience that hasn't been encouraged or or nurtured by society as it's as it's developed so when you get interested in spirituality there's a whole area of experience which can be really shocking and and uh, deeply affects people and I think that a lot of these people I, there are so many teachers who have the capacity to incite that in a listener mm -hmm. and there's also that innate quality in each individual I think we're all basically programmed the same way. I mean, it couldn't be any other, the, the case couldn't be any different than that. But it's such an overwhelming experience to have a kind of a flash of insight or, you know, a worldly enlightened experience of silence or, or something, a pause in thinking. I don't know what these things really are. Mm -hmm. But in my case, 
I was I had that kind of experience when I was exposed to JK. Then, for years, I think, inevitably, because this is how we're hardwired, I was trying to reach it or go beyond it or capture what he was talking about or something, which sets up a kind of funny dynamic inside because you put this person who says there's no guru, no teacher, no, you know, you should live in a thoughtless state, you should practice choiceless awareness, that's all well and good, but you've already put him in the position of guru because you feel that he's given you an experience, you attribute it to that person, and then you struggle to attain a goal which is just some abstraction that you piece together from your past memory and whatever you may know about the subject at hand. Yeah. Well, I mean, see, that's an example of him describing his experience. You should live in a thoughtless state. And, right. you know, that's like, uh, you know, having some uh, Olympian champion say, uh, you should be able to do backflips on a balance beam, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it doesn't just come naturally for the average person. And so a description, and, and even, if the back, even if the gymnast explained how she does the backflip on a balance beam, uh, you know, that doesn't actually enable you to have that same experience. Oh. So um, very often that gulf remains there for followers of teachers for decades on end, and, and they just sit there listening to these beautiful descriptions but not bridging the gulf. I think, though, that there is something to that dynamic. I used to dismiss it. When I met Yuji, I was so overwhelmed by the quality of him, you know, that, that he was actually, in his, in, in his actions, he was what all these other people were describing or the rest of it, but what he was saying was confounding. When I met him, he wasn't using, you know, I've since then listened to hours and hours of tape of him talking from shortly after this calamity in 67 right up until the present and his means of communicating changed over the years you know when i met him he was <laughs> talking what seemed like gibberish initially it really felt ridiculous but to look at the man and how he moved and the way i felt when i was around him and and the response to the situation it seems very natural and normal and actually quite ordinary. At the same time, it was confounding. There's a saying in India, babbling saints. <clears throat> yeah, and, it's like uh, a babbling brook. Yeah, what's meant by that is that they have the experience, but they haven't learned to articulate it. And so their, their, their speech is more or less gibberish, as you say. And perhaps in, perhaps in Yuji's case, through you know, talking constantly for years on end, he, he began to articulate more clearly. I think that what happened with Yuji, and this is my experience, is that since he's gone, he died in 2007, in the years since he's gone, all that gibberish mm -hmm. that seemed like just an ongoing joke, it, with very ordinary language, which he repeated ad nauseum, he was actually making points all the time. Hmm. It just seemed at the time like, well, I'm interested in a much bigger, more intricate answer to my question. And he was undermining the mechanism in me, which is basically a torture machine, of this desire to understand and articulate what cannot be articulated, which is life itself.
You can't do that. And one of the things that I think is so remarkable about Yuji, and at the same time makes him nearly invisible to a larger audience, is that he would never compromise the ordinariness of himself as he felt it. You know, that I am not different from you people. I can't tell you how to do something when I don't know how this happened to me. At the same time, he was always talking about it, how he functioned, how we functioned, as far as he saw that, and trying to make a connection with people that they could understand using really ordinary language. The, the, as time goes on, he uses more and more and more prosaic language to talk. So in a funny way, it's like it becomes invisible because he's not reaching for big, lengthy explanations. In fact, he would chop them at the, at the knees, any intellectual explanation of anything that a child couldn't pick up. It's true. I mean, I, I, as I listened to him, I felt like I couldn't have had a conversation with this guy because as soon no. as I, as soon as I started to ask a question, he'd cut me off after three or four words, and then he'd just carry on, and within a, a minute or two, he'd be off on some tangent completely unrelated to what my question was attempting to be, and he'd just carry on and carry on and carry on until somebody else tried to ask something, and then the same thing would happen. So it definitely wasn't a kind of a, you know. A, an intellectual uh, inquiry in a traditional sense where there's but a... What's really peculiar about that dynamic, Rick, which, which I saw happen over and over again, was any, any kind of pre-calculated question that I had would be chopped at the knees, as you described. Right. On the other hand, if someone was sitting and genuinely started wondering something and then just popped out of their mouth a question, mm -hmm. he could be screaming at a person on the other side of the room. He would stop and quietly in the same tone of voice answer that person's question in the most direct, simple way imaginable. Interesting. So he responded to deeply uh, spontaneous and genuine queries. Or, it was, it whereas was some complex in the head kind of thing he wouldn't, right? He would never give space to predisposed inclinations. Mm -hmm. If something popped out, he would immediately address it. But if you sat calculating, you know, it was over. So it was in a way he was acknowledging and, and almost reinforcing spontaneity and naturalness. Yeah. Whatever was genuinely of that person in that moment was addressed. Something mm -hmm. that was coming from the past would be shot down immediately. Huh. Now, you've, you referred to this, his, what happened to him, and it's referred to as catastrophe and so on, and as Calam I under, calamity, and, yeah. and as I understand it, it was some sort of spiritual awakening or shift that took place after years of, you know, asking every spiritual teacher he could find what enlightenment was and how to reach it. So tell us about that a little bit. Well, Yuji did spend his entire life seeking, despite his later claims. He was, from the age of 14 until the age of 21, he had a very traditional practice of yoga. He had a guru, Sivananda, in the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. He ruined his college career by taking off every couple of months to go meditate for three months at a stretch and bribing the university officials to fill in his attendance records. <laughs> he uh, dropped that at the age of 21 when he caught Sivananda eating pickles um, when he was claiming to fast, so he was a very <laughs> he was a guy who followed the rules like a boy scout, mm -hmm. but if he saw someone that he looked up to 
not living up to what they were saying, he dropped it like a hot potato. It was over for him. So he did his homework in that area at a very young age. Then he went at the age of 21 to see Ramana Maharshi, mm -hmm. who most people have heard of who are right. interested in these things. And he was there for one day, very reluctantly, because I think at that point, as a young man, he was extremely frustrated. And I'm guessing, you know, this is me projecting a little bit, but he was, he had done seven years of sadhana and felt, for instance, his sex drive was completely out of control and he was fed up with the traditional answers. And from what I know of Yuji over the years, he really knew these sutras and the systems pretty well as a Hindu does, you know, and especially someone serious. So he goes to see Ramana Maharshi, who has the kind of classic Indian guru setup, which was easier later for Yuji to bash. And you have to keep in mind, here's a guy who still has the exposure to theosophical ideas and Jiddu Krishnamurti in his brain housing unit right. as a deep influence. And Jiddu hadn't quite lived up to his image either, as I understand. No, but Yuji wasn't disillusioned with him yet. Oh, okay. Not so, quite broken. Despite the sexual affair that he had had. He'd, nobody knew about that until J.K. was dead. Oh, okay. So Nobody. J.K. kept it clean under the carpet until he was long gone. Quite right. an achievement, as Yuji later you know, credited him. <laughs> um, so he goes to Ramana Maharshi, and he asks him flat out, look, what you have, can you give it to me? First, I think one of the questions, there were three questions, but the essence was, if a person is there, can they go back and forth? You know, do you go into the state and out of it? Can and, you lose and, it and regain right. it? Yeah. Maharshi said, no. Mm -hmm. You're done, you're done. And then, of course, Yuji being impatient, as I can completely identify with, can you give it to me? Mm -hmm. What do you have, can you give it to me? And the answer he would always relay to us, who knows what happened on that fateful day, but for whatever reason, Yuji says that Ramana said, I can give it, can you take it? And for whatever reason, he finished his lunch with the, the comic book reading guru and never went back. But he did later acknowledge that that experience, that encounter, helped him to form his central question, which was, what is the state that those people are in? Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, whatever spiritual person, what is that state? And can you give it to me? And my understanding is that from that point forward until this calamity, his focus was on Jiddu Krishnamurti for whatever reason, probably having to do with his upbringing and his, you know, probably having to do with his upbringing, his circumstances. He was a, an educated young man with money, so at the age of 21 he could go get a passport and fly to London, for instance. He wanted to get into Cambridge or Oxford, and like J.K., he flunked out of both. They both said, forget about it. You're a horrible student. So he became a speaker for the Theosophical Society. And this is, I can't be exact here, but it's right around the time that J.K. dumped the T.S. You know, he saw all the corruption in that, in that organization, and he said, this is not the way. And then he said, truth is a pathless land. And you know, went on his own as a speaker. And Yuji continued, clearly, to follow his movements. So now Yuji's a speaker for the Theosophical Society as a young man. He has been unable to resolve his sex drive. 
So he decides that he'll deal with this the way you should, the way it's prescribed to deal with it. Like with sadhana, you do the yoga and the meditation and all these things. If you want to have sex in this society, you get married and you have sex. So he got married at the age of 24. So now he has a family and he has money and he's a speaker for the Theosophical Society. He's obviously educated, exposed to Western ideas of psychology and philosophy as well as the Hindu background and he is familiar with JK and he becomes uh, he somehow gets into his company in Madras because that's where Yuji lived and the TS had their headquarters and Jiddu would give speak uh, give his lectures there after leaving the TS so in Madras Yuji at some point while well, now he's got two kids and a third one on the way or three kids he meets Jiddu finally for the first time and there must have been something in that dynamic because Jiddu became friends with the family. He, the daughters, Yuji's daughter, has told me about you know hanging out with J.K. at a concert, and you know they would go, and Yuji and J.K. went for long walks, and this went on, and the two of them really went at it. I think they had long discussions, and Yuji was very attached to the guy, clearly and deeply devoted. There was a point in an early discussion that shocked me when I heard it. Uh, an earlier taped from 1970 or something of Yuji describing that he wrote actually a commentary of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras based on the teaching of J. Krishnamurti. Mm -hmm. This is long lost, but it shows you the degree to which he was focused on that one person, yet still bringing this whole Hindu background with him. So you have this young guy, you know, and he's obsessed with J.K. I'm sure he was convinced that he was enlightened, or whatever you want to call it. And his child had polio, so he moved to the U.S. at one point to get the boy treated. He left his two daughters behind. He had his son and his wife in Chicago for five years. During that time, he left the Theosophical Society. He left his wife after a one-night stand. Uh, he had been a who had the one night stand. Yuji had a one night stand with some rich Texan woman while he was doing his lecture tour. He, he, I guess the lady invited him to stay at her house one night, mm -hmm. and he said, "Well." And later, <laughs> it was funny. One morning, I was sitting with him, and he said, "It was a very interesting weekend. We didn't sleep much." But <laughs> she was in. She was. We were staying in separate bedrooms, and then she said, "Well, you don't have to stay alone." He's a very interesting woman. And then he went on to describe how even to that point, a woman's breasts will attract the attention of the eye because of the movement. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was kind of a hilarious little aside there. But my sense is Yuji was, he was already telling his wife, look, this is not long for the world. You know, this relationship, this marriage thing, this uh, family thing. And then he has this one night stand and he said, I, Yuji, if anything, was brutally honest with everyone in his life. I mean, brutally, I'm not using the word lightly. He was not an easy person, I think. As a young man, the description of his life, family life with his daughter, he admitted to it, but you know, if his wife went out and bought fancy furniture, he came home, he saw what she had done, he built a bonfire in the front yard and threw all the furniture and the colorful saris into the bonfire. Wow. So he wasn't an easy guy to be married to. No, sir. He was. He, he had married the wealthy 
daughter, the baby of the family, of a family of like 12 kids or something, mm -hmm. and she was hoping for a house full of children and ser servants. Yeah. And Yuji basically had the temperament of an ascetic. Mm -hmm. So aside from bringing her up to the bedroom to have sex, you know, any other indulgence of the senses was completely banished from the house. Hmm. Like these colorful saris, and, and in fact, he made his wife wear white, which in India is the color of a widow. Right, or so a, here's or a, a Brahmacharini, yeah. one, so, one or the other. So, so his wife, nobody around him had an easy time of it. Yeah. But the, but the point is that it indicates a person who is really dead set on one thing, you know. And he, in Chicago, he wrote to an uncle once in the letter, he said, you would be surprised, but I can assure you that it's possible to live in such a place and still pursue Brahman or Brahma, Brahman, I guess, and, uh, which is what I intend to do until the day I die. And shortly after that, he comes home and tells his wife, look, I had a one-night stand. This is finished. The only way to have sex with someone is to use them. And I guess that became a, apparent to him more obviously when he had that one-night stand. And he leaves, you know, the wife is fed up now. She is sick of U.S. She hated Chicago. It's not the best place for an Indian woman who's grown up in South India to hang out, you know. So she moves back to India with the kids, and Yuji stays on in the U.S. The marriage comes to an end. He goes through the rest of his money. So now he goes back to India. He tells his wife it's over. He gets, a, he gets on a tour with some other prominent Indian businessmen to the Eastern Bloc countries. He goes to Russia, where he finds that communism, and this is around 1950, 1960. So I guess Nehru's in power now, or Nasser, which one? Nasser was Egypt. Nasser was Egypt. So Nehru's in power, but the Indian sympathies politically are with the communists, because right. that's their kind of backing. So Yuji goes to communist uh, Russia, and he sees, he says later, your, your um, Karl Marx is basically Jesus Christ. You know, das Kapital is now the Bible. There's no difference between this and religion. Communism is basically a restructuring, a restructured religion. That's all. Was he was he being complimentary or critical? In that? You, it's funny because Yuji would say things that were just kind of plain spoken, like "Here's the situation as I see it," mm -hmm. and he wouldn't participate in something if he felt that it wasn't what it was speaking to. Like if it's claiming to be some new thing fine, but if you tell me it's going to be a new thing and it's just the same old thing in new clothes, then I don't want any part of it. Mm. So when he was offered positions in government or in business where he could see a contradiction, he would refuse. For instance, after this happened, he made his way through Eastern Bloc countries back to London, at which point he's kind of broke. He meets Bertrand Russell, who's involved with the peace movement. And Bertrand Russell says to him, you know, would you like to join? You know, I can find a position for you. And he says, well, are you ready to do away with the policeman? Because a policeman is an extension of the H-bomb. And that's what your battle is against, right? And Russell says, well, you have to draw the line somewhere. So any, <laughs> any request to moderate his search or his standard was immediately rejected. Yeah, you know, at this point, I would interject just to say that, I mean, he, he, he had his way and he was entitled to it, but um, the pursuit of Brahman or enlightenment or whatever, 
doesn't have to be so iconoclastic. I mean, you know, you can have nice furniture and wear saris and yet be a spiritual, a sincere and, and genuine spiritual aspirant. Um, you know, society does need to have a few policemen around. I mean, obviously anything can be overdone uh, to prevent anarchy. So, you know, and, and that, that doesn't really pertain to the spiritual quest. You can be in the world and not of it. You know, you can render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But anyway, that's the way... UG, no, no, that's I, the way UG operated. He was just a sort of a, a, a kind of a radical guy. And yeah, I think that's why the, there's not a big audience, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't think anyone, I, I wouldn't recommend anyone taking him as a role model or feeling like this is the perspective you have to have if you really no, want to get ser been, serious about spirituality. He would have been the first one to say, if you try to do what I've done, you'll only be miserable. Yeah, you'd be mimicking a rather extreme way of behavior, which, you know, may or may not have anything to do with spirituality. It's just it could very, very well just be a personality, you know, among many personalities. And uh, yeah, so. I mean, the danger of a role like uh, uh, the danger of my situation is that I'm so fascinated with the individual, mm -hmm. and I find that as I research him and think about writing a biography, for instance, and examine all the details of his life, the inevitable question comes up, why are you doing this? Yeah. Is it that by repeating or, or learning all this information about him, you expect that what happened to him will happen to you? Well, we and we what he was saying yeah. repeatedly was, this is your trap. Right. And I we think his, his, you know, the, the means, the basis of his, of his expression was to undermine that. Right. Imitation and, you know... So we still haven't think? gotten to what happened to him. You were talking, you've, you've been talking about his travels and his marital travails and, and his attitude toward, you know, Karl Marx and so on, but we, we haven't quite gotten to the, uh, the catastrophe or the, the whatever. The calamity. Calamity. Right? Calamity. Calamity Jane. <laughs> calamity Jane, yeah. Well, it's kind of, it's difficult for me to separate it out, Rick, so forgive okay. my long-winded answer. But No problem, I, keep going. But basically what I, I'm trying to convey is the picture that I paint of him is a man who is pursuing with everything at his means, and as he goes along, he's losing things. Mm -hmm. He's an and iconoclast, and he just keeps smashing icons, and, exactly. he, and he's ruthless, and he... You know, but he, never without he, he, he doesn't hesitate to burn bridges if he feels like the bridges are not worth crossing again. Exactly. Right. So here he is. He's he's basically run the thread out. He's still going to see Jiddu Krishnamurti. Uh -huh. He has now begun to avoid Krishnamurti because his situation is dire. Krishnamurti knows that his wife has since died now. Yuji was in London when he got the news that his wife died. His kids are scattered to the winds. And young family, too. We're not talking. So now he's in London, and he's really down and out. He meets Jiddu for the last time. He says to him, why have I wasted all these? If there's nothing you can teach me to get me to that place, then I've wasted my time. So he doesn't see him again in person, but he continues. He meets at some point when he gets really down and out. He's in Geneva looking for a bank account where he thought he had some money. Now he's got nothing. He's got a hotel bill that's unpaid. He goes to the to the Indian consulate. He meets a woman who offers to give him shelter, basically. And this is Valentine, an older Swiss woman who he spent the next 14 years traveling with, 
maybe longer, 61 to like 96 or something. Um, somewhere around those dates, whatever. So this lady is taking care of him, and now... That's, that's 35 years, 61 to 96. I got my numbers wrong. <laughs> you know, left brain, right brain, whatever yeah. that is. Anyway, he meets this lady. She says, I'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. He doesn't go back to India. Instead, every summer, he goes and listens to Jiddu Krishnamurti again. In Switzerland. In Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, things are beginning to happen to him physically. He's having experiences like a Kundalini experience where, you know, the energy is coming up through the spine and, and you know, there's all these descriptions of it, whatever. Finally, in 1967, he's sitting in the tent listening to Jiddu in Sanen, Switzerland, and Jiddu is talking about the comparative mind. And he's talking about there's a silence. If you've been following what I'm saying, you'll find that there's a silence. And in that silence, there's an energy. And in that energy, there's an action. And that action, you cannot know. So Yuji's listening to this after all these years and all this loss. And he's sitting there. And That's very profound, actually. I mean, maybe it's a, it's a tangent, but action within silence is a very interesting thing to talk about. But, you know, continue on, though. I don't want to interrupt your story. Well, it is key, Rick, because yeah. if there's an action, and mm -hmm. when I read that, when I listened to him describe this, I thought, this is why no matter how you speak of it, what you say about it, any description of the spiritual state, whatever it may be, is always secondary. Okay, we all know that. Fine. So he's sitting there listening, and he's struck by the fact that he's been fooling himself, calling what he's experiencing a silent mind, because the only way to describe a silent mind is by using a mind that's not silent at all. Mm -hmm. It's saying silence, so there's a word, so there's a noise, so there's right. silence. So this kind of gets him to this corner that he can't get out of for the f he walks out of the tent i guess it was the last talk of the season he goes back and he's sitting there on a bench and he said what he suddenly feels all these funny feelings like is this the state that they've all been describing this is what jesus was in or buddha was in with it but if it is how would i know how would how would i know and at that point he says or said the question just stopped. It wasn't resolved. It wasn't answered. Who knows why? The question just stopped pestering him, I guess. And at that point, he went home, laid down, and some kind of physical death process happened where he was fighting to keep his consciousness awake and it closed like a black aperture and this is when his friend came over, the, the woman, Valentine, who knew nothing about all this Indian stuff and was not a spiritual person in the sense, you know, she wasn't a seeker, but she was a radical, you know, she had been involved with the Paris art scene and all the rest. So she was taking, so they were living in the same building and she sees him on the couch looking really whack out. You know? And he's, what is he doing over there? So she calls this young friend of theirs, Douglas, and he's, he comes over and Yuji is lying on the couch in the bow posture, completely out of it. And he says, uh, Yuji, what's, what's going on? And then he somehow brought him back. And apparently what happened to him, as he described it, is that when the thought stopped, when the questioning stopped, there was a kind of 
I mean, this is my word, but there was like a rebooting of the physical system. You know, the chakras that are that are described represent glands. We all know that by now. And these things kind of got recharged. And why that question did it to him and why that, you know, day in the tent did it to him and how exactly that happened. I mean, all the stuff that he had done, the meditation, the yoga, the, you know, leaving this, that getting taken away, this getting taken away, all that happened. But at one point, how do you figure out exactly what made that event? So after that event, the physical changes started in his body. And that's a lot of what the first book that he allowed published about him describes, is, you know, this unblinking thing and, you know, a death process, the ionization of thought. He describes all these things in a very scientific way in a, in a sense you know like it's it's the body it's in, it's something that happens in the body when thought which is this kind of servant which has taken over the house is naturally put back into its place where it's fine it functions it works you know what you're doing you know where you are you can speak and operate in the world but it's not constantly pestering you with that's a red chair. That's Rick Archer. This is Lewis Brawley. I'm sitting in the living room. What's going what's to happen tomorrow? Why am I getting what I need? Am I getting what I need? And, you know, all this worrying stuff is suddenly gone. He used to say, if that stops, then the body will restructure and you'll live a natural existence. So that I don't know if that answers the question well, but no, that's that's good. We'll let's talk about it some more. I mean, first of all, it's it's hard to say which is the cart and which is the horse, which I think you were implying. Exactly. Um, you know, did the I mean, let's play with a few possibilities. Did, did the the physiology undergo this transformation because of some change in his mind? Did his mind change because of some change in the physiology? But there's no. But we know that there's no distinction between those, right? Uh, yeah, there, you could say there is in a sense. How? Uh, oh. But they're they're tightly correlated. I'm not saying. I'm just saying yeah. that you know, mental activity is is not physical in the sense that bones and blood are physical I think but, it is, but they're, right? t they're tightly correlated I think uh, it's subtle but it, I subtle. Mean, if you look at the yoga so, sutras I think I think those guys are amazing because they have been able to trace that it has it has its own kind of phys physicality yeah no, I would agree with that it's because yeah. it is a relative thing therefore a manifest thing then there's therefore there's some physicality to it yeah. but it but it is subtle and he, we could even borrow from physics to you know say that at a, at a certain level this book is not physical it's it's just you know probabilities and, and so on and in a in a field it's uh, easy to abstract all these things yeah right? but on a on a perceptual level it appears to be physical and sure. so like like that we have access to subtle realms of experience as a human being which are not so tangible as rocks and trees right. uh, uh, but anyway what I'm getting at is um, and let me just let me just interject some I said I was going to be opinionated let me throw in some opinions <laughs> please some opinions here it makes life more interesting <laughs> yeah um, again it's hard to uh, hard to pin down which is cause and which is, is an effect but there, do, there does seem to be a correlation between people who are striving and seeking and, and practicing and whatnot and realizations. Now maybe they're doing all that striving and seeking because they're destined for a realization and, and, and that destiny motivates them to do this stuff or maybe the realization happens because they have done that stuff. I don't know. Uh, maybe both are true. Um, and 
but c certain people just seem to be wired that way, and, and it's almost uh, involuntary that they have to have this sort of uh, seeking tendency, like you yourself. Um, yeah. I, the one thing I would say just on that note is that the trick here and the tragedy is that there are no guarantees, and I feel like that's the oh, no, dirty... Certainly. I feel like that's, in a way, a dirty secret that's not talked about enough, is that there's absolutely no guarantee that of of liberation by any technique. You know? well, I don't know if anybody's offering a guarantee. Um, if they are, then I would not trust them. Um, yeah, it's because tough. there's there's no proof of the pudding. Uh, exactly. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, it does anyway. seem to be a higher uh, probability in terms of what we observe of, of people awakening who've engaged in spiritual practices, but there's no no guarantee. No, I mean, I suppose I bring it up because one of the things early on that really impressed me was a book by a guy, uh, you probably know the book, it's Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. Sure. And he describes spontaneous spiritual awakenings. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I feel like what you're saying is, the reason I, I thought of that is that I think unless you're really looking and preparing or, or doing something in that area, something can happen. I think the body is trying all the time to get us, whatever this thinking thing is, in tune with itself so that it's not so stressed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think this kind of thing happens to people, but they don't know what it is, and then they attribute it to Jesus or Buddha or something, and they go off on a tangent with it. Yeah. Well, I just interviewed a guy a couple of weeks ago who wrote a book called Am I Getting Enlightened or Losing My Mind? <laughs> and he's, he's a psychiatrist, and, and yeah. he, he has years and years of experience in dealing with people who had spontaneous kundalini awakenings and whatnot and thought they were going crazy and went yeah. to a doctor and got institutionalized or medicated or, or whatever. So this kind of stuff is relatively common. Yeah. And and I think you make a good point, which is that the body does want to be in a natural state. It's a natural tendency the body has. Yeah. Uh, but it's you know we're all of us to always to, working to, it. Yeah. yeah. To one extent or another, we're all out of tune with that natural state. Um, and we we can talk more about that. That's interesting. Um, another thing I think to throw in is, in my opinion, there is a very broad spectrum in terms of the possible range of of both biological and spiritual evolution, and human beings occupy just a small segment of it, just as visible light is only a small segment of the electromagnetic field. Yeah. A and, um, you know, I don't care how enlightened somebody is, um, <laughs> uh, they don't necessarily have the complete package, and if there is even is such a thing, there's always room for um, refinement you know purification greater clarity of cognition and so on um, mm, I don't agree know. with that okay good uh, tell me <laughs> how how not well what you just said there is a lot that's a lot actually yeah and and I guess I would stop where where you were saying if there is an enlightenment because I I was always suspicious of the term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a loaded term, you know, like God. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's you use it, and who knows what people are hearing when you say it. Exactly. So it's it's a wide um, blanket, and then also the achievement of and the see. I I, I guess what I'm um, there, there's something in that that I. I don't want to sound as if I or I'm making a claim for Yuji. That's what I don't want to do. 
and I suspect that what you were saying came out of, or maybe was responding to that, and I just want to nip that in the bud, that I don't want to make any claim to understand what his state was or to speak to as if that's better than somebody else's or any of that. No, no. I don't want to make that claim. I don't think I was implying that. I mean, you know, you would know whatever state he was in better than exactly. I would. But well, uh, <laughs> I was going to say I don't know about that. But. Oh, but, you know, I mean, you hung around the guy for five years. So, uh, and, and I would, you know, having never met him and having only read a little bit about him and heard a few things, I would say, yeah, definitely. He, I, I mean, everybody's on a spiritual path, all seven billion of us. And, you know, many people, millions perhaps, have spiritual awakenings to some degree or another. And I think very rarely, if ever, are these awakenings final because there's always another horizon, another frontier, another breakthrough. But one can have a, a, a profound shift and yet spend the rest of their life on a sort of a, a plateau. Uh, but, and yet you yourself yeah. said uh, that UG, uh, you know, seemed to refine and, and uh, at least in its verbal expression, he seemed to evolve over time. Yeah, but I can tell you that my attraction to him was mm -hmm. that I I sensed this at a gut level, Rick, and I could have been totally wrong about this. Mm -hmm. I I like to keep open the possibility for being wrong and wait to be proven either way. But what I felt around him, and and no matter what has come along or whatever interaction I had with him from the time I met him until this moment, I haven't found any evidence yet to contradict that this was a person who was completely finished with the dynamic that I am engaged with as a socialized human being. That is to say that that servant-master relationship, the master being the body mm -hmm. and the servant being thinking or the parallel movement of thought in all its forms, ideation, mentation is the way he used to describe it, but I would just say any you know, thought-driven motivations were absent from that individual. And, again, that's not something I can prove. Right. And I could only... The reason I wrote this book was to try and describe what I saw because I found it so remarkably clear and clean and unmistakable and at the same time discuss myself so that people would know, well, maybe this guy's just full of shit. Maybe he's projecting all this. But I wanted to present the case that there, that there is no need for all these things. As I saw it in him... No need for all what things? Any kind of... Um, that's not the right way to put it. Just as you asked me that, I realized that's not the right way to put it. That he had no need of anything but food, clothing, and shelter. Mm -hmm. There was no more striving left. There were no levels or anything, I think. And it was just one thing that was happening there. Yeah. Now, what I would, <laughs> what I would suggest, my opinion, yeah. um, is that, you know, and, and there's that common saying in spiritual circles these days, give up the search. A person may reach a stage at which the search has been given up quite spontaneously. Uh, there's no striving left. Uh, but it, and anything else you want to say about it, natural state, automatic, spontaneous functioning, so on and so forth. But like the infomercial says, but wait, there's more. Um, there, <laughs> there, that doesn't mean 
that there is no possibility of further unfoldment. It just means that that person is functioning in a radically different way than, than people commonly do. And yet, What do you mean by further unfoldment, I guess? Is, I guess that's where my question is. What is the further unfoldment? Well, let, let's, let's explore this, and who knows, maybe I'll completely change my opinion in the course of talking to you. But, yeah. um, you know, if we think about what enlightenment really means, and let's, oh. let's try to define it. Yeah, what, how would you define it? That's the thing, I guess. My understanding is that, you know, obviously there, if we speak of non-duality, if we speak of God, if we speak of, you know, sort of the absolute reality of things, uh, it's, it's one holistic unified, omnipresent wholeness, you can use a bunch of adjectives there and keep on using them, uh, and, and it's like this one unbounded ocean. And we spoke, we spoke uh, recently, uh, a little earlier, of activity within silence. So it's a, the, the, the reality is a totality, it's a wholeness, and within that, it's like currents within the ocean, you know, consciousness in motion within itself. And uh, somehow, it appears to take aggregated forms through which it can experience itself as a living reality. You know, we, we have bodies, we, we move around, but we are nothing but that, but that somehow having taken a form which can know itself as that and which can speak and act and breathe and, and live, uh, and yet it is only that. So it's a fascinating, mysterious, marvelous thing. Now, when you know when that realization has reached uh, a sufficient degree of clarity, one realizes, oh, I'm not just this little meat puppet. I am, I am, I am that. <laughs> I, I, I like you know, the I'm this carbon unit, you know, to quote Star yeah. Trek. I, I am that reality. Primarily, secondarily, in a relative illusory sort of sense, I am this breathing, living organism, which is somehow, you know. Anchored in and nothing but that ocean, but able to function in this apparent world. So, you know, a perspective like that, experiential, not just intellectual the way I'm describing it, but it totally experiential, is my concept of what enlightenment is. Now, as an instrument of, of that, as a, as a sense organ of the infinite, there is no end to the to the refinement, to the subtlety, to the kind of uh, comprehensiveness of perception, the depth of, of uh, clarity with which that instrument can detect things. I mean, you can get a, a $10 microscope at Walmart, or you can you know, get a uh, $100,000 electron microscope, and they're both microscopes, but they can, you know, the, the $100,000 one can see with you know, the fine details, which yeah. the which the $10 one can't see. So you can have people who have shifted to a natural state, if we want to call it that, to an enlightened way of functioning, where they feel like they're no longer calling the shots. They're just a, an instrument of the divine, or of uh, you know, just sort of expressing, living naturally, spontaneously. But there can be vast differences between such people in terms of uh, the clarity with which they experience and understand. There can be vast differences in terms of their emotional development. Uh, you know, uh, th there's there's just no w in terms of their perceptual refinement. There's no end to unfoldment, and and even you know some very uh, advanced teachers whom I respect a lot, you know, refer to themselves as beginners. 
like Adyashanti, and he says, always, with me, I'm always just beginning. Or, you know, St. Teresa of Avila said, it appears that God himself is still on the journey. So, you know, there's, that's my perspective. And again, it's just based on my opinion and my, uh, my experience so far, subject to revision. Uh, but, but I would take someone, you know, like you, like UG or like anybody else, like Ramana Maharshi, and say, they've still got, exploration yet to yet to do um, and what you know then we have to sort of get into well does what happens when the body dies and is there anything more to life is Yuji still kicking around mm, on some level yeah. that's all very speculative that's, and who, yeah, who, who knows you know it doesn't but, really get us anywhere yeah. no it doesn't and we can only conjecture but as long as you know this life continues I, I'd say that there there's always going to be um, the possibility of you know of something more, even though it's maybe more of the same, essentially, because you know, once you realize the essential nature of everything, it's all the same stuff. But but somehow, as a, as an instrument of the divine, as a sense organ of the infinite, there's there's always more possibility of greater refinement, and perhaps even greater uh, influence influence of that person or that that entity. You know, there we there's a kind of a, a either anyway. I've I've talked enough. You you kick in. <laughs> I think I get where you're coming from, Rick, and I think basically we would disagree on this point in the sense that mm -hmm. I think that it is possible, and I feel that I have witnessed the situation where a person's um, capacity for operating from the thought, the mm -hmm. parallel thought mechanism, is blown out. Right. That's finished. Mm -hmm. And I think once that occurs, then the body then the body is in charge and it's uh, physical. I have to use the words he used, but mm -hmm. I do that because it best describes what I saw, what I witnessed, which is a physical phenomenon. And, it, and in, the, in the company of that phenomena, for myself, all these ideas of levels and achievement and refinement are completely obliterated. Mm -hmm. And that's... That's why I was so fascinated and continue to be so fascinated by that phenomenon. And when I go back to India, for instance, you know, before I met Yuji, I didn't know who Ramana Maharshi, Anandamai Ma, Nizargadatta, because of my JK background, and because I'm such a fanatic maybe, <laughs> any guru, anyone who appeared, even gave the faintest whiff of being a guru, I completely dismissed. Since meeting Yuji, I've been exposed to these classic Hindu scriptures and studied these people, you know, read about Ramana Maharshi and Ananda Mai and, you know, people that seem to have been blown out or whatever I'm describing here. Mm -hmm. And it does look to me, the evidence seems to point in the direction, to me, that if the mind is severed by whatever means, however by accident or by happenstance or practice or whatever, if this thought-driven parallel universe which enables you and I to have this conversation is no longer in charge, mm -hmm. then that is a final situation. And th thereafter, then the person is just functioning as like a machine. I mean, that sounds <laughs> no, it sounds belittling, but I don't. No, I totally understand, and I, I agree with you. And and just to to be UG-esque in my response, uh, <laughs> I would say that 
um, that's when it actually gets started. Uh, when when the started? when the mind is blown out, in a way you could see, you could see that you as see, a starting I point. Think because the evidence that I what I see is a lot of people saying that the mind is blown out. Well, whatever you that wasn't that the terminology you just used. Yeah, but I've heard this terminology. This is the difficulty of this whole subject. Mm -hmm. It's so rife with a few different things, and one is the the. Ah, there's no way to prove anything. There's no way to you know. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. Go okay, well, let me put it this way. <laughs> yeah. You know, most people feel like they are in charge, right? Yeah. And yeah. my mind is in charge, and I'm making my decisions, and, and I'm, I'm the you know, master of my destiny or whatever. Even, although they might feel that they're getting kicked around a lot, but they, <laughs> they're, they're doing their best. In the process of ruling the universe, I'm really <laughs> right. getting screwed. Yeah. Right. Um, now, you know, eventually one undergoes a shift, and we've been alluding to this, in which you realize, oh, this individuality, which I thought I was, is not what I'm. What, what I am, uh, I am that you know totality, and that's in charge. Yeah. And yeah. so, and this individual. That's a kind of awakening, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And this individual body, you, you said the body sort of runs the show or something after that stage. I would say it's not the body that runs the show; it's the intelligence which governs the universe, which runs the show, yeah. and which and which animates the body, and and always has. But at least we've gone of gotten out of the way and, and we're allowing it to sort of do its thing unimpeded. Um, so we become kind of a, an expression of nature's intelligence through this body. And that's what Yuji was, uh, to, to use terminology you may or may not be, be comfortable with. That's but right. nature's intelligence is not necessarily through with this body. It's, it's got a tool that it can use in, uh, without as much interference as it gets from, from all the other expressions. Wait, Rick, how can you use the expression that nature would use? What is it using the body for, I guess? What is it making the universe for? Why is there one? Yeah, I guess it sounds... Yeah, okay. Anyway. <laughs> no, I, just that word made me it made me kind of think, that's all. Well, yeah, and, and words are crude and limited and, you know. But and, they're giving us the opportunity yeah, to have this chat. So they we are. Thank so, them for something, yeah. So we're just kind of blind men feeling the elephant here. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, like it or not, we've got a universe. And uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe human logic can't fully comprehend why it exists or how it came to exist or anything else, but it appears to exist. Yeah. And and there appears to be an evolutionary momentum governing it. I mean, we start out with basically hydrogen, and somehow stars are formed, and then the stars explode, and we get heavier elements, and then bodies are formed. And you know, I'm cutting a long story short, and those bodies <laughs> and those bodies can have conversations, and and can start, I got you. And they I can start it. they can start thinking about wh why there's a universe, and, and where the trouble begins. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, and so where I'm going with this is that there seems to be an evolutionary force driving this whole show for the past 4.7 billion years. And it's, it's, it's in, in us as much as, as it's in everything else in the universe. And when this so-called shift takes place to an awakened state, that force doesn't take a vacation. It's still driving, still running the show, but it has an instrument through which it can express itself with less impediment with less obstruction than is, yeah. Well, I, I could refute what I'm saying right now in the next breath, but <laughs> but in other words, one becomes a sort of a. I, I used the friend, phrase "meat puppet" uh, earlier. One really does become a meat puppet in the sense yeah. that you know we're meat, but now we're really a puppet. We're we're kind of just the spokes 
person for for the infinite and uh, without so much individual agenda as we once might have had, you see? Hey, you see, boy, I listen to a lot of Yuji, and now I'm saying you see. He <laughs> <laughs> picked that up from JK, too. Oh, did he? He you said that. What I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying, sir? I don't know. You see, sir? You see? <laughs> he said that all the time. Um, so anyway, I swing back. I, hit, I just hit the ball on your court. Go ahead and play it. I'm not sure where it went. I think I got. I missed that point totally. Well, the point we're talking about. Because I'm lost. Now. We're talking about refinement. We're talking about there oh, being okay. there being further um, sort of uh, progress, if we want to use that word, uh, even after uh, awakening takes place. And what I'm saying is the in- this is the intelligence which is running the universe continues to work on us. To, to work on its expression, uh, and to and and the, the the net result of that is uh, in in the experience of that expression, in the living experience of the person who is who has undergone this shift, is continued refinement of perception, emotions, understanding, and those things are not a given. I mean, it could be that even then one can sort of plateau and, and not progress tremendous, at any tremendous pace. One can stay stuck in a realized state for the rest of one's, <laughs> for the rest of one's life without exploring the further possibilities that that realization potentially offers. But those possibilities are nonetheless there. See, I feel like this is all speculation, right? I, I, I'm basing it on... Not necessarily my own experience, because I never make ah, any claims. Ah, then it's speculation. But, but I'm also, but, but it is my own experience in in that I have interacted with so many people now who have undergone such a shift and described their experience to me, and there is a kind of a, a similarity amongst the accounts, and uh, and you know. People sort of—it's like you know—if you meet hundred people who've all driven from New York to Montana, uh, that maybe they've taken slightly different routes, but they're—you know—if you talk to enough of them, their, their similarities arise in their descriptions of the trip. Uh, you know, well, first this happened, and then I saw that, and I stopped at Devil's Tower, and you know, right. and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, um, I think we can—you know—since enlightenment or awakening has been such a rarity in our world uh, up till now. Um, it's not something that's kind of popularly agreed upon in terms of what the details of it might be or the possibilities or the stages, if there are any, and all this and that. But I think we're entering into a time when it's becoming more and more commonplace, and we may, you know, a couple hundred years from now, it might be that, the, the, you know, the, the difference between our current understanding and then will be like the difference between the maps when Lewis and Clark first went west and the, the maps we have now of, of the topography of our country. Well, I guess the, the feeling, the, the reason that I felt the need to write this book mm-hmm. is that my, and, and, and maybe, uh, I don't know how this will sound, but what I what I saw was that here's a person who's actually living in a way that seems to express what all those things that I read in those scriptures are talking about, yeah. while in a way he is saying, um, it, it's like there's a continuous movement between what was being expressed and what was being lived, whereas in my experience that has not been the case with 
many of the other examples that are given of this. And that's why I suppose, you know, I was so curious about whether he was, because for instance, my interest in Jiddu Krishnamurti, I had a very powerful experience. It changed the course of my life. I had great respect. I built an image. I had the whole thing. And then I find out after he's dead that he was having an affair with his manager's wife, which I have no problem with on moral grounds, if there is such a thing. But if a person says, the thought of sex never enters my head, and probably means it, that's fine. But when I find out that they are having sex, then whatever they say has been tainted. And beyond that, there is the issue of saying uh, no teacher, no teaching, no taught, and then opening schools and giving talks and charging money to, for people to attend these talks. So there's money and there's sex. Mm -hmm. And those are big acid tests. If someone is using this alleged experience as a means of income, then in my you know, because I'm perhaps opinionated, but it seems that there's a contradiction there. For me, that implies that they're not actually a living expression of what they claim. And well, I agree with you. You know, yeah. And, but I would use that as an example of the point I've been trying to make re in the last few minutes, which is that th it's not a black and white world, and it doesn't mean because he did those hypocritical things doesn't mean that he was zero on the scale of zero to one. And that no, no, all, no, 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 no. You know, no. he could have I'm been. Not, a, I'm not yeah, saying that. Could all. have been but a very realized man to a profound degree, but obviously yeah. with more growth yet to undergo to become really consistent. Uh, to, to become a, a more perfect expression of that, uh, yeah, to be rid of, of well, um, go ahead, I, I, go ahead, I can, no, I can I carry on I just, here, but I'm talking too much. I just find that my judgments of J.K., for instance, when after I met U.G., my thoughts for a while were, how could I be so hoodwinked? How could I fool myself so completely? How could I be such a sucker? So I started looking at U.G. with those like that kind of scrutiny like is this guy pulling something on me right is there maybe something I'm not catching here and in the process what I realized was here's someone who is <clears throat> has no motivation for or maybe the only motivation for his existence is to help other people that free themselves of that burden but he was saying all the time I can't do it mm -hmm. um, so it was a real interesting thing. And then I was able to look back and see, like, okay, well, if it weren't for JK, I never would have met this person. So it's all, as you were saying before, it is, in a way, it's not a black and white thing. Yeah. It's not even gray. I don't know what the hell color it is. It's just like I can't figure out the relationship between these two guys, you know, UG and JK. Like, here's a guy, JK, who comes from abject poverty. He's kind of handed the kingdom. Is that the dog? Yeah, I'm letting the dog in. <laughs> What's his name? That one's Shanti. I guess Ashanti. Yeah. Nice. We have another one named Nikos who's in the other room. <laughs> Got it. Anyway. Um, yeah, you're talking about JK coming from abject oh, poverty. a person who gets everything handed to them. And then you have a guy like Yuji who's given everything. For, he's born with a silver spoon and he loses everything. Mm -hmm. So... 
looking from one example to another example, and then I go back to India and I see here's Anandamai Ma, this remarkable manifestation of all these things, this cornucopia of amazing spiritual whatnot. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a story. Yeah. And I'm thinking, and in my mind, because I'm a human being, I'm comparing, well, how come she was including, like, in encouraging Westerners to follow Hindu traditions and do this, that, and the other, and, and Yuji was doing the complete opposite. He was saying, don't do this, don't do that, you know, don't listen to me, do whatever you want. Where is the contradiction here? Where is the common ground here? And Ramana Maharshi is telling people just chumairo, sit there and listen and blah, blah, blah. And in each individual yet, I still have the same feeling of they're saying the same basic thing. How can it be more than one thing? It's just what I find so fascinating for me with Yuji is that he was so kind of, you know, he made himself invisible by being so obscure and bizarre, mm-hmm. really. And yet, his expressions were so filled with implications that went in all these directions. Yeah. So I'm fascinated, in a way, because I'm an artist maybe, with the aesthetics of the situation. Like, here's a guy who is disappearing himself, and as that happens, as my fascination grows, his capacity for expressing ideas that he denied is so incredible and perfect in its own way that it's a mystery to me, and I can't get my mind around it. So. I'm caught up in my own little obsession, Rick, as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as an artist, I mean, imagine yourself going to the Amazonian rainforest and looking at all the varieties of birds there, and they're so incredible, and there's, there's so much creativity and, and variety and diversity and so on, all being expressions of that same ecosystem, you know? Yeah. And so all these different teachers... Most of them are like tropical birds in that they're such colorful characters, you know. Yeah. No Casper Melktos among them. I mean, they're just really... Um, it takes these, some charisma to get on that. Yeah, these remarkable charismatic personalities. Uh, some of them hard to live with, some of them, you know, easy to live with, but definitely all is challenge, all challenging in their own ways. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to quote the incredible string band, light that is one, though the lamps be many. Oh, they, they might have been quote, quoting somebody else. And to, to quote the band, uh, you take what you need and you leave the rest. Uh, so, I mean, there's just uh, this great variety of teachers in this whole, you know, pl- garden of God. And, and we we gravitate toward the person that we're karmically or, you know, personality-wise attracted to. And yeah. we benefit from that person to the extent that we do. And, you know... The people who were around Yuji, maybe it must have been his function and destiny to have had a small audience, you know. Uh, but the people who were in that audience probably benefited from it. And, you know, some teachers are, you know, have these world followings and so yeah. on. And, and, you know, some, and Ananda Moyama functioned in one way and Ninkaroli Baba in another way. So it's like you can't really, com- it's like comparing apples and oranges. Each, each has its own nutritional value and you kind of go with where your, where your tastes lead you. Yeah, and I think it's inevitable that you do that comparing. But in the end, as as I said in the earlier, I'm quoting him, who's quoting whatever. Is that attraction is the action itself? You know that if you're attracted to it, that will do its work. Yeah, and I think one thing we haven't really addressed, which you've alluded to, is uh, 
there's something going on under the surface. You know, it's not just like you know one shouldn't like take a book of the, the teachings of U.G. Krishnamurti and study all his little aphorisms and, and try, <laughs> you'll end try, up in the loony bin. <laughs> yeah, but there was some kind of dynamic going on in his presence, which was really subrational or irrational or something. It had not, had, didn't have a heck of a lot to do with the words that were being spoken, but that had nonetheless had a uh, transformative effect on the people who subjected themselves to it. Yeah, I would agree. Ah. And boy, you know, he, he didn't pull punches. I came, I came across this thing. Uh, well, he did, Rick. Really? He could have punched harder? He punched me. Oh, pull punches. Pull right. punches. That's Sorry. a saying in boxing where you don't punch <laughs> yeah. as hard as you might. No, no, no. Yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. Never yeah. that. Never. Somebody sent me an account of uh, Byron Katie's encounter with UG in the late 90s. She was very impressed and went to visit him in Palm Springs. In, the, in those <laughs> days, she was quoting him all the time. I'm reading yeah. now. Uh, and uh, so much so that it began to irritate people. Uh, and she was always defending UG. She told me that he was the only person she ever met who was in her state, whatever that means. Yeah. So anyway, so they set up an interview between the two of them. And, uh, you know, she's very excited about that possibility. And uh, then uh, during the course of the interview, uh, which apparently is on YouTube, um, uh, Yuji goes on to say how the, the work of Byron Katie can never work and tells her she is only interested in money. Towards the end, he brings up copyright issues and saying you can never claim anything as your own. Afterwards, Katie and those in her inner circle brushed Yuji aside as a rambling old man. She herself never funny. mentioned him again. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how that happened there. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's a brilliant interview. At one point, he compares himself with a common sewer rat. <laughs> it's genius, I tell you. Uh, did he say something at some point about this natural state he had achieved, or you know, excuse me, the terminology, but this natural state he had somehow fallen into as being unprecedented and unique and unlike anything? I, no, somehow I heard that. It's very, see, it's very tricky because he would say that every single, and he repeated this, I can say literally until his dying day. And mm -hmm. I think people either hear one version or the other according to what they want, but he said every single living organism on the planet is completely unique. Mm -hmm. And what I'm expressing here is no more important than a common garden slug, and he really meant that. Mm -hmm. And what you will express when this happens to you will be extraordinary and will make what I'm saying completely obsolete. So he never made the claim that he was the ultimate anything. He only said that at some point he threw out everything that man had thought and felt before him, and that enabled him to experience life at a point which had never been experienced before because memory was no longer in operation there. So every living, every moment was so fascinating with him for me because it was like watching fire you know it doesn't have any it moves in all these directions he used words like a computer in terms of repetition in the sequence of a sentence it was bizarre Rick I tell you I mean he could repeat things over and over and over and each time the effect would be slightly different mm -hmm. so what I think what he was saying is look once you sever that tie with the past you're finished all this, you know, I want this, I want that, I enjoy this, I, en I despise that, I like this. That's all gone. And the only thing that's left 
is life. And however that expresses itself, you won't know. You won't be able to direct it. You won't be able to capture it. There will be some remnant of that which will affect everything around it, just as this conversation is affecting us. Mm-hmm. But he never made any claim that he was superior or, you know... Huh. But he, ne- he, he did have very strong opinions. I mean... Um, sure, appar- appar- Well, apparently. I mean, it's not like everything <clears throat> is everything is perfect just as it is and there's no, no, qual- no, no, no. no qualitative differences. I mean, he was, you know, saying pretty outrageous things. Uh, mothers or bitches or whatever, you know, that phrase. The funny thing about those Ten Commandments, for instance... Uh-huh is that they actually describe how people behave. I see. And the same thing with these money maxims that he wrote toward the end. I was so baffled by that whole thing. 108 money maxims. What the hell is he doing? And it occurred to me that he was simply describing consciousness as humans experience and are tortured by it. Hmm. That every single person I know wakes up thinking about money, and it drives us crazy. You know, and so in a funny way, he was really addressing core issues of how we function, and we don't, without realizing it, you know. I think that he was just using whatever means he could find to upend this whole ideational fascism of, you know, achieving a higher goal or becoming a superior being. He was really trying to strip people and push them into a corner where they would be forced to be themselves. Hmm. And that's not an easy job for anyone to do. But I think that he was right when he said that any real teacher, any real guru will do that to you, and it will not be a pleasant experience. Hmm. So he just had his own way of going about it. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, like everybody else, he was a unique individual, and he did it his way, you know, <laughs> like Frank. Like Frank, yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> and Sid later. Right. Who was Sid Vicious or something? Yeah, yeah, that was his final swan song, I believe, was I Did It My Way, and he sure did, you know. Yeah, or as Jimi Hendrix put it, I'm the one who's got to die when it's time for me to die, so let, exactly. me, let me live my life the way I want to. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, usually we were watching, um, he was so great at like pulling stuff out of common pop culture and using it, and, and it was wonderful. I mean, it was uh, Bill Moyer, Bill Bill Maher? Bill Maher. Bill right. Maher was quoting uh, that uh, Janis Joplin song, The Only Thing... Uh, oh, Jesus, it's such a simple line. Oh, I think I know what you mean. Uh, nothing left to lose? Yeah. Freedom means nothing left to lose. Right, right. Something to that effect. And you mm-hmm. just mumbled, that's it. Hmm. I think unless you lose everything, including your ideas, and I speak to myself on this, your ideas, your ambitions, your hopes... Unless all that goes, you're stuck in the the kind of merry-go-round, you know? And this is what I saw in him was someone who got thrown off of that, Mm. to use his expression. That's why, you know, that's why I respond to when you say levels and all these other things, because I just feel like I know I understand what you're saying, and I'm not dismissing that that's irrelevant, but I, I saw someone who seemed to have been thrown off of that, and it really fascinated me. Well, you know, I, I think what I what I'm kind of referring to when I speak of levels and this and is uh, kind of the the idea of integration in a way. I mean, I haven't really brought that up. I interviewed a guy last week, and at one point in the interview, I said, "You're Israeli, right?" And he said, "No, I'm not Israeli." 
And I think what he was, I should have, I wasn't quick on my toes, but I think I, what he was saying was pure consciousness is not Israeli. And I should have said, well, what's on your passport? You know? That's pretty That's pretty pretentious. That's the kind of stuff that I find really offensive. I get really annoyed with these people that pretend like they're not what they are. Well, I think he has, you know, the guy who's had a genuine level of experience and all, but if you ask somebody their nationality, obviously yeah. you're, not re- you're not referring to pure consciousness. You're asking, what's your nationality, a, dude? Yeah. on a plane as a pure consciousness, you know? Right. So you end up. <laughs> so what I'm getting at here is that, um, yeah, on the one hand, we can be script, stripped clean of all our assumptions and, you know, biases and this and that. But also, if you're going to live life in the world, uh, you have to kind of... Uh, put on those those suits, you know. You, there's there's you don't necessarily have to like ab- abandon your family and, and be penniless, and you can play Here's that game thing. and yet not be duped by the, the by the Maya. I do think, though, and this is probably where we would part opinions, mm-hmm. is that if and when, when and if, if at all, this thing would happen to an individual, mm-hmm. those things become no longer Gripping. possible. No, no, they're possible? no longer possible. Yeah. Why? In what sense? So you because mean you, you couldn't hold down a job or raise your kids or anything? I don't know about that. But all what, I, what did you mean by no longer possible? That that vocabulary would no longer have an effect on your actions. Uh, maybe not. Well, let's. let's I, I don't know, but I I suspect strongly, and I would be, yeah, I would put my eggs in that basket. That the, that vocabulary would no longer have an effect on your action at well, all. I'm not entirely sure what you mean by that, but let me just posit this, which is that, um, you know, I have a friend, let's, uh, uh, who lives here in my town, who had his, you know, his. Uh, calamity when he was a young man now he's in his 60s he's been living in what we might call an enlightened state for lack of a better word for decades now um, he's raised a family married has two kids he's an artist he works like yourself but he, he works in a company produces beautiful uh, pieces of art uh, owns a car has investments you know he's, he's living a, by all appearances a totally normal life if you talk to him about his actual inner experience of life what's going on as he walks down the, oh, a trail with you on a walk or something like that he's in another world you know completely different than the average person experiences but he's so well integrated that there's no com- there's no possibility the people who are just listening to this in audio can't see you scrunching your face yeah, up yeah right? <laughs> I, I, I cringe well, yeah why, why are you cringing with that why can't there know, be that man. kind of integration all of this and heaven too yeah exactly I think that the 200 percent of life I I know nothing about your friend. Mm-hmm. I can't speak to his situation at all. I I would absolutely have no idea. Mm-hmm. But I cannot imagine that one could be stripped of the burden of this parallel thinking mm-hmm. and carry on without, you know, somehow I I feel that it just wouldn't wouldn't look like that, but you know, how the hell would I know, man? I can only say this. I would only say this. I don't know your friend's situation, and I, right. I can't speak to anybody else, but I can only... And he's just one example. I could cite yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I feel like there's a lot of people who are having 
amazing experiences and there may be various levels of consciousness that mm -hmm. can be experienced. Mm -hmm. I'm sh there are. It's just a fact that there are. Sure. But I suppose I would have to then say that that... Yeah, I don't know. I, I just... You're skeptical that that's possible. I'm skeptical of the claims. I'm well, he's not making claims. In fact, he refuses to be interviewed because he doesn't want to go public. He's very private. But, um, you know, so he's not allowed to prove anything. But I'm just holding that up as an example of the, of that, of the, of the degree of integration that's possible. It's not necessarily... See, I think that's... It's not necessary to come across as a crazy man and, yeah. and to be enlightened or, or vice... You know, it's not, it's not enlightened people. I, I'm using that word just because it's a convenient word. Are going to necessarily stand out in a crowd or act... No, no, not act at uh, not at all. Act inappropriately in social situations. They, they can be, com for all intents and purposes, completely integrated with their families, their societies, and everything else, and yet have living an inner experience, living in an inner world, so to speak, that is quite out of the ordinary. See, I just uh, there's a line that was this really beautiful line that I I've heard it several times. But he said, "I am not in conflict with the society exactly the way it is. Mm -hmm. There's no conflict with that. I never saw him behave in a way that would get him arrested. He never said anything inappropriate to a person that wasn't capable of taking it. Um, he was only outrageous with his friends." Um, no, no, I mean, the, yeah. you never, I never saw him deliberately go out and hurt someone's feelings. Mm -hmm. um, but I did see there was a complete disengagement from the life that I know and experience mm -hmm. uh, as a personality, you know. Right. And, and, and I think for me those key things, again, were money and sex because... You know, and I can't make an argument for these things, Rick, and I'm not trying to sound like a prude, but I feel like that this burnt seed phenomena that is described so well in the terminology of Hinduism, which I'm not subscribing to, I'm just saying that I did see these examples after he was gone, these descriptions, and they somehow ring true. And, I, you know, that's just my little opinion. And, and obviously, as you're pointing out here, I've been deeply influenced by this man. But the inability to function sexually seems to be a part of it, you know. And I think that has to do with this some something which is curiously human in this maybe when a human being is completely I don't know what you would call that. I don't actually know because I am <laughs> this is where I I'm now in the realm of speculation. So mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's tempting to drift into speculation. Well, as I say, my friend has two kids, and those were post-awakening uh, pregnancies. So, I mean, <laughs> what I'm saying... <laughs> I was, what I would suggest here is that UG is not the only template of what it is no, like. No, absolutely what it, not. You know, and, and the variety, the diversity of an, uh, awakened people is perhaps almost as diverse as the diversity of humanity itself. There, it can show up in so many different forms, householder, recluse, you know, crazy man, uh, sane man, business person, bum. There can just be so many different... Um, Channel so many different instruments through which that is realized, and the, the external appearances no. are just not going to fall into a neat cubbyhole. And there's no way to prove anything either. No, of course not. I mean, you're the only one that's there at your graduation, so to speak, and and you know, so nobody can can. After uh, that, it's uh, no one can give you the stamp of approval <laughs> that that, that yeah. others could agree upon. Yep. Yeah. So we all, we all have to reach our own conclusions. Yeah. Yeah, it's a funny business.
Yeah. Very funny sense. business. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very strange. In, in a way, it's the most intangible thing that we can possibly talk about or experience, and, and yet there's this huge sort of, you know, historical fascination with it. Yeah, I think that's, you know, as a young person, I totally rejected religion. Mm-hmm. And because I thought, you know, this is such a perfect tool for manipulating people. What a better way to make money off of people than to claim that some guy told you, like some guy in the main office said, you owe me 50 bucks or you're going to go to hell, you know? I mean, what yeah. a great setup. And it continues to be, I think, because people are so disconnected from from their their own natural state. Right. Yeah, and, and I think that cynicism is totally justified. I mean, I look at all the fuss they make over the Pope, you know, and I think, so what? Who cares what this guy said? You know, or, look, at <laughs> that, look at that life. I went to the Vatican, and I just remember walking in thinking, this is obscene. Right. And is this the all supposed to be... The amount of money here, and this is supposed to be all about service, and, and what is it, service and selflessness? Yeah. Good yeah. God. I mean, who that goddamn column over there could feed an African country, you know? Yeah. And, and and that column over there could feed a U.S. country now. I mean, like several states in the United States. I mean, yeah. it's obscene. I feel like it's also one reason that I'm very touchy about these people that cl- make claims and then go out and make a lot of money off of this stuff because I really get – it gets in my – it sticks in my craw that it's such an easy ploy to – prey on the gullibility of these poor people that feel like, oh, that guy knows, you know, and he's saying this, and that's why I get worked up about it. Yeah. I think that's why I was so impressed with UG2, was that I really saw, this guy lives like a, he lives what he speaks, you know. Mm -hmm. He had all the people giving him money, and he gave it away. Right. I saw that happen, so I was impressed by that, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that, you know, I, I remember sitting in his apartment after he when I, you know, he kicked us all out at the end there. I was helping him when he was sick, and then he was like, all right, you people go back where you came, whatever, get out of here. So <laughs> so we left, and I went back to his apartment, and Rick, there was nothing in there mm. to distinguish that any particular person lived there. So here's a guy who lived what I thought I was interested in, and I found it very unnerving. Like, wow, this is really, like, he had nothing, you know? And that was a little spooky. I have to say, you know, when you're faced with that sort of thing, it's it can be unnerving. So when he died, was there like a big hole in your life? Did it take you? Um, are you still kind of? Are you still grieving <laughs> I was in a so sense? Eve, man, I can't tell you. Huh? Because because it had been so intense. It was with... so goddamn intense. Hmm. And I'm glad for every second of it. It was a fucking night. Excuse me. Sorry. Are we on the air? <laughs> it was a nightmare at times, but I knew the whole time that there was good reason for me to stick it out. Yep. That this was the most unique and interesting thing that could ever have happened to me. And once he was gone, the interesting thing about the experience with him for me is that it just kind of makes its way into the world in my life in ways that I cannot explain or justify to anyone. It's just there. And all the things that he was talking about, I see around me all the time. All those funny phrases that sounded so ridiculous and absurd, like the money maxims. Right. I have a friend that made a beautiful recording of them, this Indian woman with a voice like an angel. Money is the only thing worth living for. You know, this <laughs> right. 108 of them. It's this 10-minute... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Passage and it's I I sometimes listen to it when I'm going to work and I look around and, th- and I work in the art world, mm-hmm. 
where somebody takes a shit in the corner and gets 200,000 bucks for it. And if you think I'm exaggerating, I can give you concrete examples of this. Yeah. And I realized, wow, money is it, man. Money is at the, the money is the baseline of our consciousness until and unless something like that snaps you out, you're in there. So all those things that I, that drove me crazy, you know, and for some reason my relationship with him was so peculiar and perfect. I mean, I was a smart ass and he smart ass. He out smart assed me every time, hmm. you know, so it was at times like having a little, an annoying little brother. And at other times, like this angelic presence. At other times, it was like Satan incarnate up my ass. You know? I mean, it was intense in every possible way. So when he was gone, (laughs) I felt like I had my life back in one way. Mm. And I had it back like nobody can ever take this from me again. Like, And after that encounter, I felt like, you know... There's, there's nothing, you know, that, that nothing was wasted there. I did not make one wrong move to hang out with the guy. It was for sure a good investment in that sense. There's a line in the Gita where Krishna says, as men approach me, so do I favor them. And did you find that, like, you know, you were the smartass, and so he, he kind of, <laughs> you know, it was there was a tit-for-tat kind of uh, uh, relationship, but then someone else with a completely different personality, he would morph into a completely different, It it was bizarre to see it, Rick, because I say, I mean, there were very quiet people who I have since talked to who, um, you know, there was a woman in India, a young woman. She was 13 when she met him, Mm -hmm. and her parents were both really intensely seeking, and she was this kid kind of lost in this world of the adults, you know, screaming at each other because the meditation was being interrupted and getting involved with swamis and pundits and here is this kid you know like oh God. <laughs> and she meets yuji and he just very sweetly you know engages with her in a couple of very simple ways that she to this like 10 years later says that changed my whole life mm. you know she was at one point upstairs in the house where we would meet in india and she'd kind of get sick of the whole scene and go upstairs and watch tv Mm-hmm. She'd talk the old man up there into letting her watch MTV, you know. So she's up there watching MTV, which her parents forbid. Right. And she suddenly feels this presence over her shoulder. And she looks up, and it's Yuji, and she's terrified. She's oh, now I'm screwed, yeah. And he goes, and she changes the channel, and he goes, why'd you do that? I was watching. <laughs> and she said this whole thing just kind of melted for her. And he, he kind of watched with her for a while, and then he left, and then she felt... You know, these little tiny encounters, like you were just saying, it wasn't me. It was every person that came in contact with him, he responded to in kind. Mm-hmm. So that was a nice thing to see. That's sweet, yeah. I'm glad we brought that point out. So, because, you know, he has a reputation for being a real hard-ass, but right. I can tell you he did things that would bring tears to your eyes, just like... Those kinds of little tiny, tiny little gestures, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of just intuitively knowing what each person needed. Yeah, and not making a big deal. I mean, I once tried to thank him for something. Mm-hmm. Wow. Huh. Huh. I got a. That was a severe heat blast there. <laughs> huh. And I understood why. You know, he did not want people to feel. Um, what's the word? Uh, and, you know, uh, when you do something for someone and you expect something in return. Right. Um, obligated or... Obligated or any of those yeah. words were like responsibility, obligation. Um, 
You know, that kind of thing was the an, an anathema to him. Right. He did it because it was needed. You know, like with that kid, it was needed that someone recognized, look, this is a kid. She should be allowed to do what she's doing. Yeah. For Christ's sake. I mean, there was one guy who was in his room jerking off. I'm, mm. I'm not exaggerating. He uh -huh. comes in, and Eugene immediately starts talking about pornography and masturbation, and why do people have a problem with this? Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, it, so he would. So it put the guy's thing. mind at ease, kind of. Yeah, like yeah. you're a human being. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. Hmm. I mean, in, you know, so those kinds of things were very immediately communicated to people, and there were countless descriptions. And I was in the room so many times, and people would—he'd be screaming at one person, mm -hmm. and the person on the other side of the room in the corner would be feeling it mm -hmm. because he was he was discreet enough to realize that that person in the corner couldn't handle it. Couldn't take a direct face. hit, yeah. But they knew exactly what he was talking about. Interesting, yeah. And, and I felt that from him at times as well, you know. It, it, it was a great ballet to watch. The theater was incredible. I had that thing, that same experience with Maharshi one time where he was, uh, there was something that I was responsible for that I completely screwed up. And he was screaming at everybody about the fact that this, <laughs> this thing had been screwed up. And I was sitting there just feeling like mortified, yeah. you know, because oh, I, I knew it was about me. But then finally uh, he said, well, who, who's responsible for this? And someone said, well, Rick Archer. And it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And he just kind of <laughs> went on to something else. Yeah. And but, you know, lesson taken. <laughs> yeah. I have a great. But I, I couldn't have taken the direct blast, I don't think. Yeah, it's funny how they know. Yeah. These people they sense. They, well, it's uh, very often it's very in, it's completely intuitive. I, I mean, not to tell too many Maharshi stories, but another time I, I was in Belgium with him and he was speaking to an audience of a thousand people or something, and and he was going on and on and on about some point, and later on after the thing, I was standing up around the, his couch and he was saying, "I wonder why I was going on about that point so much." He said, "There must be somebody in the audience that really needed to hear that." Yeah. You know, but there's, that's the point. It's like there's this kind of cosmic intelligence that's pulling the puppet strings, and very often, I, I, I probably all the time, you know, at least in Yuji's experience, you, it wasn't like this rationality that was no. driving him. He was no. just a force of nature. Yeah, I think that's what's so fascinating about these people. Again, it's like that thing where where nobody's really in charge, and there's something very liberating about that kind of company. Mm -hmm. You know, you sort of like I, I remember initially thinking. This is so ridiculous. The first week I met him, I went to the hotel every day and sat there thinking, what the hell am I sitting here for? Right. You know, why am I bothering? And at one point I would fall asleep. <laughs> Wake up thinking, this is really, really odd. And the irony of this is uh, I met him in the hotel room across the street from where I first saw Jiddu Krishnamurti speak in New York City. So there was some... That's funny. And then you were in the same town in Switzerland and the same place in India and all this... <laughs> The parallels just go on and on. And yeah. how could anybody plan this? You know, some kid from this, this Irish Catholic kid from Ohio ending up in a living room in Bangalore with some nutty Indian sitting mm. next to him, you know, smacking him on the head. None of this really adds up. There's a saying in, uh, I don't know the Sanskrit, but the saying is, Brahman is the charioteer. And the implication is what we were just talking about, that someone living in that state they are not the charioteer. Yeah, the, yeah. Br Brahman is the charioteer, you know, and, and they're just kind of like this force of nature that, you know, they themselves couldn't often explain to you why it is they do what they do. They're just on automatic. It's, it's really wonderful, too, because I was able to go to India as a person who had completely rejected. There were two places in my life that I was not interested in. 
Switzerland, and India. Really, I mean, I was a New Yorker I, in my mind, if not in my life, and I wanted to be like Jackson Pollock or one of those guys. You know, I wanted to be an artist, an American, you know, known thing. And then I end up in Switzerland and India for years mm -hmm. with a guy who dismisses my paintings as the worst shit he wouldn't even wipe his ass with. <laughs> you know, I, I think... Let's take, take you to down a notch or two. Thank God, because my <laughs> life is so much easier. Mm. And what's interesting is that my fascination for these Hindu texts came from watching someone about whom those things are written. You know, so I got to see it from the inside out mm -hmm. because I would not have had the patience to find the best stuff that's there. Right. And because of his company, I was around other people. And this is the interesting part about Yuji is that he seems so radical and he was so extreme, but the core followers or friends of his in India were all very serious Indian seekers. And they knew all this stuff. And the people who were really sincere immediately spotted this in him, like, oh, this is, this is what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And the pundits and the intellectuals over there who were steeped in it intellectually would walk right out of the room. Hmm. Because he would look at them and say, you know, a tape recorder could do a better job than you are. Hmm. Is that operating in your life? That was his question. Does that operate in your life? Kind of reminds me of Jesus railing against the scribes and the Pharisees and, you know, and kicking out the money changers in the temple and, There's a you know, reason, just being you know? a rad radical dude who, re who rejected intellectual understanding, you know, mere intellectual understanding. Because and, and, uh, if you're living something, you're not going to have patience for somebody's petty interpretation of something that you live. Right, right. That doesn't have any room anymore. Sorry, pal. Go get, go somewhere else, you know? Mm -hmm. And he was the first one to encourage people, look, if you want the easier, softer way, please go find a guru. Because I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna do it for you. Right. You know? I mean, his first line to me was, I'm sorry that you are here. The best thing for you to be would be to pack your bag and go. Because you're not gonna get nothing here. And so what did you get? Looking back on those five years and the way you feel now, how has your life been transformed, if it has, by the whole phenomenon? <laughs> it's funny because I think I've been disabused of a lot of useless ideas. And at, a, at the most basic level, I lived in my studio and had a steady job and a, and a life in a career track that was frustrating the hell out of me. And since meeting him, I no longer have a home. I pretty much trashed my career, and I feel more um, less uh, stressed, you know, in terms of like dealing with uh, life's demands than I ever did. So somehow things got easier without my really. I don't know how that happened, really. Yeah. Well, those aren't exactly sales pitches, you know. Get, <laughs> That's what I mean. Get into UG and you'll be homeless and jobless. <laughs> I was thinking, I'm not jobless, actually. No, you have a job. Right. Than I did. This is the interesting thing is that I'm more efficient in my life than I was. Mm -hmm. And my life is much more what I had hoped it would be without my somehow having orchestrated that. Right. Came you know, about a way that you couldn't have anticipated or orchestrated. Right. I tell you, man, and I work in the art world, and the fact that everything he said is true, 
And that's why I couldn't succeed as an artist, because I can't get up there and say, I'm a great, brilliant, you know, and I believe that I'm, you know, you have to, you have to pitch something to the world. I said to him once, look, I'm looking at you and I'm seeing what all these people are claiming is an operation there. Why are there 10 of us sitting here? Mm-hmm. Now, what's the explanation for this? Please. And he said, if you want to be famous, you have to sell something. Bottom line, I refuse. End of it. That was it. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, if you become invisible, your life gets really interesting. It opens up in ways. I mean, I learned from him that a shopping mall, which I used to find it was an anathema to a New York hipster living downtown, was a really interesting place. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the little exchanges in the world that I was rushing through are where life is happening. And with this guy, with all these endless, absurd, torturous drives through four countries and three states and, you know, shitty food and weird going into someone's house and being thrown across the living room floor and like, what the hell am I doing here? Once he was gone, I kind of dusted myself off and I realized, wow, I, a lot of my baggage got dropped along the way here. Mm-hmm. This is kind of okay. You know, I'd be walking along thinking, I should be more worried about things than I am. What's wrong with me? (laughs) How come I'm not thinking about, you know, this, that, and the other? And then I would think, wow, so things have changed. But, you know, like you said, it's (laughs) it's not exactly the sales pitch. Right, yeah. Interesting. It's a funny, funny life, I tell you. That's for sure. Yeah. No, it's it's a fascinating account, um, and obviously it's not something that anybody else can repeat now because he's gone. But you know, although they might find some other teacher, uh, but um, and there are similarities in terms of being in this kind of maelstrom, you know, uh, around a teacher like that or like anything, uh, just this tornado. And, and like when it's over, you think, "Holy mackerel, what was that?" And yet, <laughs> and yet, wow, you know, I'm not yeah. quite the same person that I was. Well, Rick, I never imagined in my entire life that I would write a book. Right. Then I write this book, and I rewrite it 14 times. It gives me something to do while I'm cruising around the world and being homeless. You know, mm-hmm. It's a great thing. When you're an artist, people look at you like, oh, that's nice. You know, Oh, I have friends who are artists. But when you're a writer, they go, oh, really? That's interesting. Because I think they think they're, you might write about them. Mm-hmm. So I felt I was getting you know, kudos for being a homeless, you know, wandering idiot. So <laughs> then I get two publishers. The biggest publisher in India and uh, you know a non-duality press in in the UK, which these people were fantastic to work with, and it all just happens like that. First book, I mean, this is ridiculous, mm. really. But I also discovered that I love to write. Yeah, you're good at it. I really enjoyed the whole thing, and yeah. he was the one. I was sitting there when he first fell, sitting with him at night after everybody left, and I was making notes to myself. Like, fell many? He he had a fall and broke a bone or something, or? Yeah, I think he strained a leg muscle. Okay. And, and he couldn't walk without assistance. So mm-hmm. then I got this, you know, incredible 24-hour exposure to the guy, mm. which was bizarre in its own way. So I started making notes. And then he started saying, oh, look, he's writing a book. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I, I'm just making it. Don't, let's not get out. Don't get excited <laughs> there, champ. So I'm making my notes. And then at some point it became a refuge for mm. me. 
because it just got so crazy. And it was a place where I could go and like note it down. This is crazy, you know. Yeah. But it was, uh, and also then after he was gone, it was a great way to kind of process the whole thing. Like, how do you, people would ask me, Rick, like, I wasn't surrounded by spiritual people until I met him. You know, I was surrounded by artists or people that I worked with or whatever, and I never discussed these things. So when people would ask me, so what do you do? You go to meditate? Well, well, not really. We go to the mall and have coffee. What? <laughs> then how do you explain, you know, what the hell are you doing up there? Or I'd come back after a month and the guys I was working with would be like, so you enlightened yet? How's, the, how's life on the mountain, you know? Are you going to get a diaper and, and set up a business? <laughs> so it became a way of explaining what happened, you know? And it was a, it was so it all kind of falls into place, in a funny way. So you're still a relatively young guy. Do you? Uh, fi- <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's hard to tell when you have no hair, but you look pretty yeah, young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you find? Do you feel like you'll ever associate yourself with another teacher? Do you find yourself reading or visiting other teachers or anything like that? Or do you feel like you've done that, been there, and and you're just gonna kind of do whatever you do for the rest of your life or is it hard to say very hard to say i mean there were there there have been people i thought there was maybe you know maybe more that i should be doing mm-hmm. you know initially when he was gone and i i was fascinated by a couple of people but eventually everything came back to him because the experience was so intense and overwhelming um and i have very close friends that i've met through him and i continue to to discuss these things with them, you know, the implications of this and what about that and, you know, what he was saying here. And because I still write about him, I'm pretty wrapped up in what he was saying. And I just have no idea, you know. I I cannot imagine that I would find anyone. Of course, there would be no one like that. No. But I'm very fortunate to have friends who were deeply affected by him in my life. So... I have people I can bounce stuff off of, and who the hell knows? I, yeah, who sure, knows? I wasn't expecting to meet him, that's for sure. True. And he didn't teach practices, obviously, so I presume you don't have like some kind of spiritual practice you do on a daily basis or anything like that. You know, it's funny. I'm not supposed to. I feel like I'm... But my since meeting him, my obsession with the material is such that I cannot have one waking hour without wondering how all this is processing in here. Hmm. And I think that's probably its own practice. I kind of know. know what you mean. I mean, I, I, I have a, a meditation practice myself, but aside from that, I'm just you know, kind of obsessed with <laughs> reading this stuff, talking to people, you know, just um, in a much more diverse and eclectic way than I once was, you know, when I was just yeah. with one teacher. But, uh, you know, it's kind of the focal point of my life, and it probably always will be. Yeah, when somebody plants the seed in your head, if you want one thing mm-hmm. and one thing only, then you will surely get that. Mm, seek and you shall find. But that will bring you to a corner that's really tight. Mm-hmm. And so I find myself wiggling out of that corner every day. <laughs> you know? And I think that's its own practice. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, things come to fruition in time, just as with Yuji after couple of decades of you know seeking and obsessing about this stuff he sat down on a bench and and you know something happened to him yeah or ananda my ma just got born and looked up at the mango tree yeah (laughs) how do you predict this stuff it's ridiculous right i mean so all you know for all you know you could be walking down the street this afternoon and bingo some dramatic 
shift could take place. Gosh, Never. I hope so. It would be nice if it happens at three, Rick, because i got to do my laundry, you know? <laughs> well, you know, chop wood, carry water. You can still do the laundry after. That's after, right. I see how I forget. Or, or like Jack Carnfield said, after the ecstasy, the laundry. So. Yeah, there you, you can, go. You can do it. <laughs> Ecstatic laundry doing. Right. Great. Well, this has been fun. Um, fun conversation, fun book. And, you know, I mean, I don't just mean that in a trivial sense. It's really enjoyable no. talking to you, and it was enjoyable reading the book and dipping into the Yuji world a little bit. All, <laughs> all I'd heard from him before that was, uh, about him before that, was a friend of mine who had bit, seen him in India and came back and said, God, he's a horrible man. <laughs> it was terrible. I left oh, this. That's great. <laughs> I took and, a friend from the JK discussion group, and he had the same reaction. Yeah, but I realized there was more to it. And, of course, your, your book paints a much more um, multicolored picture then well that's good yeah it does it, it it really captures you know your love of him i think uh which was beautiful and just despite all the craziness and the the difficulties and all there's this love that shines through and it's really sweet yeah i would have been i would have been most objectionable i would have found that word horrifying but there's no way around it yeah it's it, it's, it's evident you know yeah. And um, even at one point in this interview, you almost began to cry at a certain point when we were, we were talking about it. I could see the emotion welling up. So it's very sweet. Well, Rick, I, I just uh, really appreciate your giving me your time here. I, 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 I've seen your interviews. I think you're doing a great service there. And uh, I'm always surprised when someone takes an interest. So it's a pleasure to be able to talk about it. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, I really appreciate everything you've done and uh, you know the efforts you've gone through to make this book and everything it's I think it, it's worth reading I think for people it'll give them a different perspective on, on spirituality and perhaps our our conversation you know will be a taste of that and they can decide whether they want to read it or not but um, <laughs> <laughs> I should put a warning on the label those yeah. parental warnings <laughs> um, and I'll link to the book from uh, your page on bathgap.com to you know it's called Goner by Lewis Brawley the final travels of Yuji Krishnamurti and um, do you have any wrap up points before I make mine <laughs> um, I guess not Rick no, okay. I mean, if I haven't said it yet, I can't say it now. Yeah, well, it's been a good conversation. Yeah, thank um, you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So let, let me just make a couple of wrap-up points to those okay. who, are, who have been listening or watching, which is that this interview has been part or is part of an ongoing series, and there are 170-something of them now all archived both on YouTube and on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. That's the easiest place to, to kind of ch check it out because there's an alphabetical listing there and also a chronological listing of, of all the people I've interviewed and also a page announcing the people I have yet to interview, including a link where you can send in recommendations if there's somebody you would like to see interviewed. Um, <clears throat> there's also a discussion group that crops up around each interview, which usually... And it elicits hundreds of posts. People really get into it. Uh, there is a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking if they feel inclined. Um, there's a tab where you can sign up for an email notification each time a new interview is posted. And there's a link to an audio podcast, so you can subscribe to this in iTunes, listen to it on your iPod, and not have to sit in front of a computer in order to, to participate. So uh, feel free to check all that out. And uh, thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>